We trace the call. It's coming from inside the house. Hello and welcome to the From the House podcast. I am your host, Keodric Moses. And in this space, we're going to explore and dissect what it means to be liberated and how we can achieve liberation through acts of resistance. And one of the most profound groups of people in which this particular form of resistance liberation can be found in mass is the Black LGBTQ plus community. And I say that as a proud member of this community. But I also have to say, as a member of this community, and as the a member of the Black community writ large, one of the most shocking things that I've experienced in my adult life is just how much hatred there is for gay Black people within the larger context of the Black community. And I've struggled with that reality because I can't understand for the life of me how a group of people who has suffered at the hands of white supremacy culture for generations could turn around and impose that same kind of oppression on its own people and justify that oppression with homophobia and transphobia. But what I've come to recognize is that for straight Black folks, this isn't about intentional oppression. It's about the fear of losing legitimacy within the structures of white supremacy. This perceived privilege comes with the veneer of power, and that power comes with a sense of safety, no matter how false that sense might be. So they push the rest of us to the margins, hoping that they might enjoy the comforts of their discount white supremacy while also suffering under the thumb of its progenitor. And I struggle with this. Not just because it's ruthlessly hypocritical, but because it's also antithetical to how we've historically moved as a people. And I think that we desperately need to get back to our roots on this so that we might have a fuller and more realized form of liberation for all of us to enjoy. Because as the old saying goes, none of us are free until all of us are free. So let's talk about that history, because I think that it's important to understand what I mean when I say we aren't moving like we have been as a people. There is a really dope book that I read a few months ago called The Helping Tradition. It's a book written by a husband and wife pair, doctors Elmer and Joanne Martin, who were both Black sociologists back in the 80s. And they were interested in highlighting and understanding the history of the Black family unit, particularly how Black folks in America came to define family as something that really fell outside of Western kinship norms. And how we use that structure as a community to uplift and support one another in times of great turmoil. According to the doctors, Martin, uh, this family structure, which was made up primarily of extended and fictive kinsfolk, played a role in pre-colonial West Africa. At that time, some of these West African cultures believed in the idea of collective well-being. If you didn't have what you needed, somebody in the community would step up and make sure that you had it. And no individual ego was more important than the collective well-being. People were looked upon in shame if they let their egos get out of control. And at that time, again, this kind of thinking wasn't a product of survival. It was just a way of life. 
But of course, that all changed when enslavers decided to make property out of Black bodies. That instinct to build a community to support and uplift each other became a necessity for survival. People were ripped away from their families. Children were sold into bondage and had to rely on older enslaved Africans for protection and support. Imagine the collective empathy you have to have to build a family with strangers from different parts of the continent while also enduring the psychological and physical torture, rape, and abuse that comes with enslavement, all of that while trying to maintain your humanity in the hopes that you would one day see liberation for all of your people. That empathy and that compassion for our collective humanity is what pushed our people uh, to push back on their oppression. And there was one central consensus to that larger resistance. White supremacy culture does not serve any of us. And at no point in history was that more true than during Reconstruction. And if you think that it was all rainbows and butterflies after Black people were finally freed from the bondage of slavery, you would be sadly mistaken. Not only did anti-Black violence skyrocket, but the government which had facially had our backs at first, finally caved to the violent racism and failed in its mission to keep us safe during our time of need. As Jim Crow laws took effect in America, we had this race-conscious awakening. We started to understand that the systems that were designed to keep us in bondage and relegated us to the margins thereafter would never work in our favor. In order to properly combat those systems, we had to support one another where we could, and we would have to fight as a people to see our collective liberation. And it is in this space where my confusion runs the most rampant. Because why? Why are we currently in the space that we are in? If liberation is our North Star and has been our North Star as a collective for generations, why are we here? And clearly, I wasn't the only one confused by this conundrum because a few weeks ago, a very popular Black podcast featured a segment from a Black trans activist named Angelica Ross, who framed the issue pretty astutely. Do you really want to see liberation for all Black people, or do you want the privilege to create a spinoff of white supremacy, where Black cisgender heteronormative men are supreme, and where Black cishet women are almost as supreme, but just underneath them. You know, know your place. And the rest of us black, bisexual, lesbians, gays, trans people, non-binary folks, what? We don't count when we say black lives matter? We've been doing a lot of championing about the human rights issues abroad, but right here at home? Hmm. It's been a shame to watch black folks pin issues, black issues against LGBTQ issues as if they're mutually exclusive, and they're not. As a black trans non-binary woman, I want freedom for all of us, and I want it now. My rights as a black trans woman do not need to come at the expense of the movement for black lives. In fact, folks like myself, Marsha P. Johnson, Audre Lorde, Bayard Rustin, Angela Davis, James Baldwin, and so many more have proven to be invaluable to our collective liberation. Fact check, true. This is all true. When we say Black Lives Matter, we don't just mean straight people. We don't just mean cis Black men. And in our time of collective crisis, we used to fall back on love, empathy, and compassion as our saviors. 
We used to be able to care for people with whom we had no blood relation. We used to be able to support one another no matter where we came from, what we've been through, or who we are. And we've started to lose that. And in recognizing that, I'm going to make a pretty bold claim here, as if I haven't been provocative enough. Um, I strongly believe that the promises of the nuclear family model have contributed in large part to the erosion of our helping tradition. So the nuclear family model is relatively young in its conception, um, but it has also permeated the collective American ethos since like the late 1950s. The central idea is that a household is made up of a mommy, a daddy, a Ben, and a Sarah, but what is not always articulated about this model, but is readily understood, is the lie of middle-class success. If you got the family, you got the proverbial white picket fence, then you got it made. It's done. You're successful. You can retire in luxury. But that's not been our reality. I would argue that that hasn't been anyone's reality. The only thing that the nuclear family model has done is inject this idea of dominance and subjugation into our community. Even if our family units still facially maintain the appearance of fictive kinship, the damage has been done. Our collective well-being is no longer at the top of that hierarchical pyramid. Now, straight cis black men stand at the top, and anything that would allegedly undermine that dominance is perceived as a threat to the black community as a whole. And this is where I think homophobia and transphobia play uh, the biggest role in holding my people in a chokehold, uh, because they see seem to believe that if a gay or trans person even exists within our community, then we are not going to be taken, quote unquote, seriously enough as a companion piece for white supremacy. They are always quick to say that a gay person or trans person is weakening the black community. And you'll have to forgive me because that's a bullshit. What is weakening the black community is how short our memory has become. So I'll say it again, just in case you missed it the first time. White supremacy culture does not serve any of us. And if we are talking about being liberated and freed from the shackles of oppression, we can't be engaging in oppressive behaviors. It don't work like that. We can't, in one breath, say that Black Lives Matter, and then in the next, ignore the death of our brothers, sisters, and siblings who have suffered at the hands of white supremacy. And we'll talk about that a little bit more after this short break. Okay, so this podcast is sponsored by no one because this is a class project. <laughs> but I do uh, hope you enjoyed that moment of mental rest because we're about to get back into this very intense and very intentional conversation. A part of me feels kind of silly having to recontextualize this because we all lived through the racial awakening and racial backlash of 2020. But the part that has always dumbfounded me about that year is that during that time, trans Black women were being murdered at high rates and experiencing violence at high rates. 
and there was little to no outrage from the larger black community. Of course, the black gay community were up in arms, rightfully so. But the larger black community didn't say anything, and that didn't sit right with me. The human rights campaign has marked 2020 as one of the deadliest years for transgender folks in general, but specifically black and brown folks. According to the human rights campaign, at least 45 of these people were killed in 2020. One of those women who was murdered was a, a native of Charlotte. Her name was Monica Diamond. And I'm not even going to front. Like, I didn't know anything about her until researching for this project. And that's mostly because of what the the human rights campaign admits is an oversight by our media apparatus. And the one thing that we understand fundamentally about how our media ecosystem works is that they highlight the things that are going to generate the most interest. And the fact that they didn't is very telling. The lives of these transgender folks are just as important as George Floyd, as Elijah McClain, as Ahmaud Aubrey, as Breonna Taylor. These people's stories need to be told. These people's lives need to be grieved and celebrated by the larger community because if we leave them out of the conversation, then we start to diminish their humanity. And I think as equally as important, we start to diminish the humanity of those transgender siblings that are still with us. But the thing that makes the LGBTQ community within the Black community so resilient is our ability to tap into that helping tradition a little bit more than our straight counterparts seem to be able to. We have built subsects of our own community under the umbrella of the Black community as a way of survival. And I do want to discuss one of those subsects because I think that it is one of the most successful outcomes that we've had within the Black LGBTQ community in terms of revitalizing the very thing that the Black community writ large has seemed to become detached from, and that is, as I said, the helping tradition. But I want to talk about that a little bit more after this short break. During the late Reconstruction era, there was this parallel movement of queer folks creating safe spaces for themselves to celebrate the parts of their identity shunned by society. Uh, they would host these masquerade events, which eventually expanded into what we now refer to as drag performances. These performances became a space for young gay men to finally be able to experience freedom. And yes... If you were listening closely, I said young gay men, and I specifically should say young gay white men, because what was regarded as a display of gay liberation was actually just a homosexual reflection of heteronormative standards at the time. These events 
um, particularly as we moved into the 1960s, were just made up of gay white men who were dressing up in women's clothing and competing in pretty linear fashion shows. And other uh, queer folks, folks of color, were relegated to the margins as they were in the larger society, and they had to endure watching these men lean heavy into their whiteness. And some Black folks and other folks of color did try to compete in these spaces, but they would have to first conform to white standards of beauty, oftentimes in the case of Black folks and brown folks having to wear makeup to lighten their skin before they were even allowed to compete. And even then, sometimes they were still barred or they never really were taken as serious participants in these competitions. And it was very much still a white man's world. Now imagine all of that in the 1960s, during the height of racial tension in the country and violence perpetuated against both black and queer bodies. They were tired. All they wanted was a space to be themselves. So they carved out their own spaces where, part, where both parts of their identity could thrive openly and freely. In doing that, they created new ways to express themselves and gave new life to what was once a kind of linear display of queerness. In the installation of competitions and houses, um, they breathed new meaning into the Black queer experience uh, and gave them purpose, gave participants purpose, hope, and community. Now, there is a snippet of a conversation that I would like to share that I had with a friend of mine who is a part of the D.C. Maryland ballroom scene. Um, but I kind of want to take some time to touch base on that last part a bit more, because I think it's really important in differentiating ballroom culture from drag, especially in the 1960s and 70s. Now, remember the context from earlier. In the 1950s, the nuclear family really took root in the American ethos. And when I say that society didn't want anything to do with these folks' queerness, that also extended to a lot of their family members. A lot of these people were estranged from their family because they were queer. They were, in large part, left out in the streets to fend for themselves. And these houses, as I name-dropped before, were basically makeshift families that were built out of that collective marginalization. Not unlike our enslaved ancestors who were made to form kinship networks to survive during the time of enslavement. And being in these families, being in these houses, came with a sense of pride, especially when engaging in these ballroom competitions— but it was more and is more than just competing. It's about reframing societal norms around identity and really engaging with individual expressions of self and community love. But before I get on my soapbox, which I am prone to do, I think that this is a great place to drop the snippet of my conversation with my friend, Ali. Culture, like I was saying, was the uh, history of it being Black and queer protection. Like many things in the Black community, we create hidden things to keep ourselves protected. Not just as a challenge against white supremacy, but it was more or less for protection. One contender of those 
uh, drag balls. Crystal LaBeja uh, made one of the first houses, which is the House of LaBeja. I think it does push back on gender norms by creating a safe space for people to express themselves throughout the entire spectrum and also giving a name and award to, you know, people of those categories, you know. Uh, at this point, um, they have categories for uh, transgender women, which we call them femme queens, um, very feminine uh, uh, gay men, we call them butch queens. And then we have like, you know, the really masculine men, which are the the twisters and the realness. And there are so many other different categories that kind of accept different walks of life within the LGBT community. So I feel like that that's a really, really good way that it does that. Taking these gender expressions and not only giving them names, but giving them purpose within competition to celebrate each other. As a tradition of solidarity, love, and compassion, and self-expression, I think that these types of spaces are amazing and they should continue We need to uplift each other. We need to celebrate the things that make us unique and beautiful. But as a means of survival, these type of spaces still being necessary is extremely heartbreaking. And yes, I mean in the year of our Lord, 2023, because according to the Trevor Project, 28% of LGBTQ youth have experienced homelessness at some point in their lives. 26% of that population is Black. 55% of those respondents have experienced this homelessness because they either felt like they were going to be mistreated because of their queer identity or they were. And that is insane to me because I'm still trying to figure out what happened to us. What happened to our ability to love one another? What happened to our innate instinct to uplift and support one another? And of course, that is a rhetorical question. Because I do know why this is happening to us. And I've already talked about it. We've let the systems of white supremacy take precedent over loving and caring for one another. And I am deeply worried about our community because of that. We cannot uphold structures of white supremacy and tear them down at the same time. That's not a thing. That's not how any of this works. It's all or nothing. And the homophobia that is born out of this idealistic respectability politics, which is a derivative of white supremacy culture, is dangerous. A person's sexuality should not be a threat to your existence, and it damn sure is not a threat to our collective well-being. I mean, who are you trying to impress when you are threatened by the existence of a trans woman? Who are you trying to impress with your overzealous violence towards men who like other men? These systems and structures that we interface with daily are constantly keeping us from experiencing what it means to be truly and fully liberated. And here you are, as someone who is oppressed by this system, turning around and doing the same damn thing to someone else. And if you cannot handle someone else's existence because you're scared that it's not a good enough reflection of white supremacy culture, then I promise you we're going to be stuck for a hot minute and we'll continue to be stuck until we get over this collective fear that we've ginned up within our own community. We need desperately to get back to our roots, and we need to get back to loving and uplifting one another against the confines of white supremacy. That has always been our North Star, and that is our way to achieve true liberation. 
So here's my task for you today. I want us to let go of this nonsense that we've embraced in our community. I want us to let go of this idea of dominance and power that we've let infect our psyche. I want us to re-embrace love, empathy, kindness, and understanding as our foundations for connecting with one another in this community. And we start by really understanding our place in the community. We are not seeking to be reflections of the very system that has oppressed us for generations. We are looking for liberation for everyone. That collective liberation extends even beyond our community. Let us be one of the foundational flashpoints for societal change, because that is what our community has always been. So the next time you have a family member that is queer, that comes to you because they need love and support, because they can't seem to find it anywhere else, do not treat them like their queerness or transness is a phase or a mistake. Do not harass them. Don't yell at them. Don't act like the conversation ever happened. You need to embrace them. You need to support them. Be their rock. And I promise you that that will bring us one step closer to being truly liberated as a people. Okay, so that's all for this episode. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you have a great rest of your week. We the call. It's coming from inside the house. You hear me? It's coming from inside the house. From the House podcast is brought to you by Women and Gender Studies 6602, Fall 2023, UNC Charlotte, under the instruction of Dr. Maria Lobato.